Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today's podcast is an incredibly special one for me. I speak with Edward Espy Brown, a Zen priest, chef, acclaimed cookbook author, and teacher. He's the author of the best-selling Tassajara Bread Book, which was published in 1970, and the complete Tassajara Cookbook, among others. He helped found Green's Restaurant in San Francisco with Deborah Madison. And more recently, in 2018, he published the book, No Recipe, Cooking as a Spiritual Practice, which is one of my favorite food books of all time. If you get my newsletter, you have definitely read quotes from this book. I quote it quite often. I am so honored to have Edward on the show. He shares his background and how he became interested in cooking and in exploring flavor as a kid and young adult. He talks about the importance of finding your own way in the kitchen as both a cook and an eater and how you can develop trust in yourself. And spoiler alert, this often means doing things awkwardly, as Edward says, which I found very refreshing. Edward teaches us what it means to taste food. I mean, to really experience it. We talk about the importance of connection, not just with the foods we eat, but also with our bodies, our senses, and the people around us, and how connection requires vulnerability. Edward also discusses the importance of enjoying our food and how enjoyment differs from excitement or greed. There are so many nuggets of wisdom in this episode, as well as plenty of stories and laughter. I hope you'll give your attention to it, as Edward says, taking the time to absorb his teachings. And I hope that you'll leave empowered to find your own way, accepting what shows up for you. As always, you can support this work by rating it over on your podcast app or leaving a comment. Those things really go a long way. You can share it with your friends or you can sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit food newsletter, which goes out every week with new recipes, tips, and my thoughts on bringing more presence and ease into the kitchen. I'll pop a link to that into the show notes, but without further ado, let's dive in. Edward, welcome. I'm so honored to have you here. Your book, No Recipe, Cooking as a Spiritual Practice, is my favorite food book in the whole universe. And I feel like you have been a teacher for me for quite some time, even though we've never formally met. So it's a complete honor to have you on the show today. I'm going to start by asking you the first question that I ask all of my guests and that is, what is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? It's a little hard to say what my cultural upbringing is. I was born in San Francisco and I'm a Californian. And we're not sure whether there's culture here or not. <laughs> my mother died of cancer two weeks after my third birthday. So then I spent four years in an orphanage. I'm not sure what culture the orphanage had, except that we were to behave according to the rules and regulations. And one doesn't know whether 
you know, if there's much in the way of parenting going on, that's a kind of parenting. It's, as I say, I don't know that it's culture mm-hmm. to be in an orphanage. It's not familial, it's not family culture anyway. Mm-hmm. And then after four years in the orphanage, my father remarried and my brother and I moved back in with our father and his new wife. His new wife then was my mother for over 50 years. His new wife, her parents were both Danish. Did I grow up in a Danish culture? No. My father's background was English and German. Did I grow up in an English and German background? No. Mm-hmm. My stepmother was a Czech. Her parents both came over from Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, in the early 20th century, met in South Dakota and My mother was born there in South Dakota and met my father at the University of Chicago. But in her way, my mother was quite brilliant. And I did then get to later get to know my Czech grandmother. Mm. And we used to make bread together occasionally. I mean, I went to visit her in South Dakota at least twice and we made bread together and laughed a lot. You know, and she did everything by with eyes. Mm. with nose, with hands, with mouth. So that confirmed what I was doing. Mm-hmm. What I had learned for myself because, you know, mostly if you don't grow up with that, you don't learn that. But mm-hmm. uh, that brings us to how I started cooking. I, I started cooking because I loved to cook and I enjoyed food and I enjoyed the whole process of cooking. Was that from a very young age? No, it's more after I dropped out of college. Mm. And when I started living on my own and having to cook for myself, you know, when you have to cook for yourself, you kind of look around and who's going to who's gonna do the cooking? <laughs> and, and you look around and you don't see anybody. And then you might assume that you buy product because you can go to the grocery store and there's a lot of product in the store that says, I'm quick, I'm easy, I'm quick, I'm easy, mm-hmm. buy me, buy me, buy me. Why should I buy you? I'm quick, I'm easy. I'll be there for you just the way you want me to. All you have to do is put me in the oven and set the timer or the microwave. And uh, you won't have to look at me, feel me, touch me, taste me, and figure out what to do with me. I'll just be there the way you want me to. So that's, I don't know, do you call that culture? Mm. I don't think of that as culture. So anyway, I decided I would cook. Hmm. And, you know, that's the simplest, best way to become a cook. You decide you're going to. Hmm. But I had what you might call, I don't know what to call these things. For lack of a better word, I have had a very important experience. When I was 10, I went to visit my aunt, my father's sister, outside of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. She was married to Norwegian. And I don't know what happened to her, but somehow in her growing up, she'd learned to cook and she learned to bake and she learned to make jams. And they had a cellar that was full of canned peaches from the yard. They had an acre mm. in rural, not rural, but Falls Church, Virginia semi-rural. And we would come home from sightseeing in Washington, D.C., my brother and I, and the house would be full of the smell of homemade bread. Mm. And I was amazed. I thought, this is amazing. This is so good. 
this is so delicious. And then we'd have hot bread mm. with real butter. I learned to make bread from that history. So when I was 10, I decided, well, first of all, I went, came back to California. I asked my mom, my Danish mom, can you teach me to make bread? She said, no, yeast makes me nervous. So then at that point, and I had decided already, I will learn to make bread. I will learn to make bread and I will teach other people to make bread. I was you 10 were years young. Old. You were 10 years old. 10 years old, you can have some pretty important, powerful visions if you go back. My brother, he's four years older than me when he has his birthday, which he had yesterday. My brother said, I enjoyed the Smithfield ham, but it didn't change my life. Hmm. So, you know, we're all different people. But I'm someone who is interested in connection. Mm-hmm. And that's people face-to-face, body-to-body, heart-to-heart, you know, heart-to-tomato and food and connecting with food and connecting with flavor and connecting with taste and connecting with my body and connecting with doing. And mm. I want connection. Mm. Not everybody cares much about connection, you know. But if you're going to have connection, then you work. Yeah. Because it's very hard to connect. As long as you're in your head and thinking about things, you don't have much connection. Yeah. You're in the world of thought. You're not in the world of meeting face-to-face. Those connections for me personally, and again, I can't speak to anybody else, but that's what makes a life rich. That's what gives life for me a sense of grounding and a sense of joy. Absolutely. So much of your book, No Recipe, is about finding out for ourselves. And it's interesting because you mentioned when you were just talking about being young, you had to learn for yourself in the kitchen. So much of the book is about being conscious and present so that we can find our own way, both as cooks and as eaters. And what made me kind of think about this was that really comes down to trust, trusting in ourselves. How do you learn or how do we learn to trust ourselves as cooks and as eaters? Well, you know, practically speaking, the answer is haphazardly Mm. or awkwardly. Mm, I love that answer. There's a wonderful story about someone going to, who's heard about a famous Sufi master. And I think the story probably is a young man, but it could just as well be a young woman. And he spends weeks, you know, a month or more, and finally tracks down the Sufi master and says, Master, you know, and gets an audience somehow. What's the secret of life? And the master says, Well, the secret of life is to make wise decisions. How do you make wise decisions? Well, you make wise decisions based on your experience. How do you get experience? (laughs) Oh, from your foolish decisions. So part of what you're trusting is, you know, it's a shift in a certain sense in the shift because implicit in that is how can I trust myself to make things turn out the way they should? Mm. And you can trust yourself to make things to turn out the way they do. Mm. And you can decide 
how that was and whether you like that result or not like that result, you can decide that and you can know that. And then you can see what you did or didn't do in the process in terms of what you added or didn't add or how much time you allotted or whether you were getting stressed or what went into your decisions. And so you're learning to trust. Anyway, it's a big, big difference between trusting. I trust myself to make things always come out the way they should. Mm. And we don't know how that is. And we can have pictures and then can I make that happen? And that's what we, we don't trust. And it's not useful to trust that. Some people get quite good at that and they still, you know, aren't necessarily connecting with the food. And I tell people various things when they ask about trust, you know, like one of the things, you know, for instance, I do in my cooking classes, which are less often now than they used to be. I have people taste something. We make a tomato sauce, starting with canned tomatoes. So the first thing we do is, well, let's taste these canned tomatoes. Hmm. What should we be tasting? Hmm. And, you know, you try to explain, there's nothing that you should be tasting. And I came up with the expression, taste what you put in your mouth. Hmm. And can you trust what you experience? And can you give it language? And the more language you can give it from your world, you know, the more you start to trust. Mm. It ties into this concept that you also speak of, and that is cooking in the dark. <laughs> and not literally in the dark, but you share how not knowing is sometimes the best way to learn because it forces us to become embodied. It forces us to be in our senses instead of relying so much on the should look like this, the should taste like that, but we have to live it for ourselves. Yeah. Well, it is understandable why any of us would ask, how do I trust? Because the scenario we're given in our culture is that there's recipes for everything. And of course, at some point, either for yourself or you, you know, I've been listening once again to Brene Brown's six CDs, The Power of Vulnerability. Mm. And right at the beginning, she says straight off, you know, if how-to worked, we would not be the most overweight, most addicted, most medicated culture in human history. Is that culture? Mm. <laughs> but we believe in this how-to. You follow the recipe and things will come out the way they should. And if they don't, then you didn't follow the recipe or you needed a better recipe. And it's never like, oh, you could learn for yourself. That's not what we learn when the recipe mm -hmm. doesn't work. You know, or the woman who studied dieting for herself, she identified 10 or 12 people who had lost significant amounts of weight, 35, 50 pounds or more, and kept it off for five years or longer. They all had one thing in common. They'd mm -hmm. each figured it out for themselves. <laughs> and they each had a different way they went about it one person said well I I decided to invite a thin person to lunch once a week <laughs> <laughs> anyway or you know somebody started bicycling or you know one thing led to another but you know you can't publish that mm -mm. 
She had been turned down There's by no 11 sales. publishers who said, nobody wants to hear. They have to figure this out for themselves. Mm. Tell them what to do. So this is pivotal. Is there something wrong with me that I can't follow the recipe? Mm. Or am I not using my innate resources and creativity and capacity to experience this moment and know for myself what my take on it is? And I studied at some point communication skills. What I observe, what I think, what I feel. And it's not about whether those things are right or wrong. They're mine. Mm. I'm the expert on me. Mm -hmm. Amen. (laughs) And you can say, I'm wrong. You're wrong. Well, yeah, maybe in your world, I'm wrong in in some general world, but in my world, that's my experience. That's how I describe it. Mm. And I'm the owner of that. My experience is mine and I'm the authority on my experience. So, you know, you, you want to trust yourself. You start reminding yourself, Mm -hmm. I'm the authority on my experience. Whether somebody in their world calls it right or wrong, good or bad, or likes it or doesn't like it, in my world, it's my take. And, oh, maybe I could look at that differently. Oh, okay, maybe. And maybe tomorrow I'll see it differently or experience it differently. We observe, we observe, and we learn Yeah. for ourselves. Yeah, for ourselves. We observe and learn for ourselves. And by and large, we can trust that. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit Food Newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. I'll move on to one of my favorite quotes in your book, which I've shared many times in my own work. And this line really struck me and it had so much to do for me about cooking. Quote, when we realize that the things we do are not just things, but our behavior, then we may also realize that we have the power to change our life by changing the way we do things rather than what we do. And this is so powerful because it's really about how we choose to go about cooking and eating. It's not necessarily the what or the end result, but it's the how. And for me, that's unlocking. That just unlocks the secret to my own beliefs about food, that it is the process. It's not the end result that matters. It's the process. What does this process look like for you in your own life? Well, it keeps happening. Hmm. I've come to, you know, at least tentatively speaking, you know, understand that we each have an aesthetic of what is beautiful, what is not, and how, you know, how things taste, Mm. uh, how our life is occurring. And what I came to partly was, you know, I mean, in Zen practice, which I, I did, if I may use the term, religiously. (laughs) 
for 20 years, which I did rigorously, which I did with a lot of discipline for many years. You know, you put your awareness a lot of the time, the instruction is to follow your breath in your abdomen, for instance. Well, you know, I did, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 hours of meditation following my breath in the abdomen. Hmm. So is that good for anything? Eh, we don't know. <laughs> but it may be that it's good for, you know, cultivating your intuition. Hmm. Or for cultivating your felt sense, because it turns out that, oh, what's his name? Taming the Tiger, Peter Levine, you know, decided that the second chakra is your felt sense. Mm -hmm. And the head, in the head, you go, what should I do? And in your hara, in the second chakra, you go, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. And those can obviously be in, those are not so obvious. But they can be in conflict. Mm. I say that they're not so obvious because, well, I want some chocolate cake. Oh, it's not good to eat chocolate cake. Yeah, but I want it. And I want you to shut up about whether it's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's a, an unruly second chakra. <laughs> and, you know, it hasn't been transformed yet from desire to devotion. Mm. And second chakras can be, over time, transformed from desire. Instead of desire-based, I want chocolate cake to devotion. I'm devoted to tasting what I put in my mouth. Mm. I'm devoted to tasting each bite of chocolate cake. I'm devoted to taste each potato chip. And when you have devotion, then you don't have the same qualities of addiction. Mm. You know, because, you know, so much as you know, many people have pointed out so much addiction is based on, you know, how do I get the sense of shame? How do I quiet my sense of shame and not being worthy enough or good enough? How do I quiet that? And one strategy is, you know, to find a substance that will, when you indulge in it enough, those voices are quiet. Mm -hmm. You no longer feel shamed. But then when you get a little conscious again, shame is right back. Mm. Shame on you for drinking. Shame on you for overeating. Shame on you. And then you can quiet them by, so nobody knows whether the addiction is first and then the shame or the shame is first. And mm. then there's addiction. Mm. <laughs> it's a self-feeding loop. They, they, go, they go along together. But when you have devotion to, you know, I use the expression, careful observation of the obvious. Mm. And you're honest about your careful observation of the obvious. And I'll tell you a story about that, you see, and this is where at times, you know, I mean, there's certainly times that, you know, there's shifts in the context of Zen practice. And we used to when we were starting out at Tassajara, we served bread at lunch. And we served yeasted bread and non-yeasted bread. And we cut those slices of bread in half. And many of us, younger men, would eat 16 or 18 half slices of bread. Wow. Eight or nine slices of bread mm. for lunch with soup and with salad mm -hmm. in seven minutes. So we ate a lot of bread. and. You have to understand, I mean, you don't have to understand, but, you know, we were in the grip of, you know, desire or what you might call greed. 
and greed I, I would describe as, you know, greed is not the same as enjoyment. Because mm. you know, if you, you know, you've read my book, you know that mm. it's actually quite a wonderful, you know, you're learning to, if you're learning to taste what you put in your mouth, you're also learning to please enjoy your food. Mm. And people say, oh, if I, if I enjoyed my food, I'd be a blimp. No, that's if you were greedy for your food, you'd be a blimp. If you enjoy your food, then you'd realize when it's no longer enjoyable. It takes presence. It takes presence. And so we would, we had baskets of bread for every three people. And if you were the first person in the row, you'd count the number of slices and take your third. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, the baskets would be refilled and you could take more. You got your share. And then in order to get seconds, you had to make the first disappear. You couldn't take seconds if you still had firsts. So you had to get rid of the first and the, get, the way to get rid of the first is to eat them. Quickly. Quickly. <laughs> so in order to get more, you had to get rid of what you had. Not taste it. Mm -hmm. Not enjoy it, mm -hmm. but consume it in such a way so that it disappeared so that you could then be entitled to have more. Because mm -hmm. the important thing was to have more. Thinking that having more was better, mm. regardless of what your experience was. And at some point, I don't know, I would guess this happened with other people, but I realized, you know, like I wasn't tasting my food. I was mm -hmm. just getting rid of it <laughs> in my mouth. And you can have a kind of sense of excitement, you know, anyway, excitement or a lust even, you know, and consume it in your consumption of it. But you don't have enjoyment. Mm -hmm. You don't have a tasting what you put in your mouth. And so, you know, pretty much overnight, I decided to taste what I put in my mouth. And then you eat a third as much. Mm. So at some point, you know, your second chakra gets tuned from satisfaction to desire and this excitement and, you know, this energy that goes into consuming and having. But in order to have more, you have to get rid of what you have. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes... Um, mm -hmm. Sounds like consumerism. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like consumerism. <laughs> you have to have that connection that we spoke about earlier, it seems to me, to have that enjoyment. If you're not connected, then you're popping it back and, and hanging Yeah, it. if you're not connected. So it's very, it's very fascinating because in order to have enjoyment, you have to have connection, which means you have to have vulnerability. Mm. And to have enjoyment, you cannot keep yourself as you've known yourself. You... Let go of yourself and have a self that is enjoying. Wow. I got that originally, or I mean, it's right, it's there all along in Buddhism, but I got it especially from Thich Nhat Hanh. Because mm. he used to say, please enjoy your breath. And he used to say, please enjoy your food. So I thought about it a lot. And I also then remembered my own experience of shifting from, you know, trying to get rid of something in order to have more which is, as you say, consumerism. And it's not, it's not satisfying. 
And, you know, just this week, there was an article in the New Yorker magazine about food. You may have seen it. And the disappearing distinction between food and product. But, you know, the person who's, the article's about had written a book on product and how he was eating a lot of product and how he was never satisfied and never hungry. Mm. Which is, I'm now finding out is, you know, a lack of what's called eros. Because eros is, you know, this is what connects us. The story that Bly mentions in Iron John is one creation story is that there was an egg, there was a ocean, and there was an egg floating on the ocean. And over time, a sword came up and cut the egg in half. And there was Eros. But to have Eros or connection, genuine Eros, you need to, you know, have that kind of openness or vulnerability. Mm. And you have to have it. You have the sword is what the sword is what goes. No, this is greed. This is connection. Mm. This is separation. This is connection. This is, you know, maybe exciting, but this is, you know, harmonizing and connecting. And this is enjoyment. This is disappearing into an experience where I'm not exactly hungry. I'm not exactly satisfied, but I've gorged myself as much mm. as I can. And we call those, you know, in Buddhism, of course, hungry ghosts or, you know, maybe in the old myths. It's a giant that will just, or it's the, it's the divine mother who, of course, has the wrathful side to Kali and so on. So, mm-hmm. you know, we will eat up everything and not discriminate between what's enjoyable and what's not, or, you know, what's pleasurable, what's, mm. what's what. So it's interesting that enjoyment means having some discernment. Discernment is another way of talking about the sword. Yeah discernment and that softening, that softening. I mean, I think of my own history of cooking and so, so many years of my life, cooking was spent in a very stressful state and I was not being vulnerable. I was putting on my shield to achieve a task. And when the, when the knife came down for me and I had to switch my lens, I had to learn how to soften and breathe and be still even if for a minute before picking up my chef's knife, but I had to take off that armor and it was not very satisfying (laughs) in the old way of cooking that I used to do. It was not satisfying. It was quite stressful. Were you working with other people or? Yes. So some of this is work related and some of this was just having a new family and work life. I strove so hard to make it work instead of, just following step by step and not trying to be perfect and allowing things to unfold as they were going to unfold instead of how I perceive they should unfold. Wonderful to hear that. And, you know, if we're lucky, I think we experience that in various areas of our life and not how they should unfold, but how they do and to stay with things and to stay with the processes it's unfolding Mm. and sorting out what to do with the circumstances that arise. And not being too worried about, you know, there's Chef's Table is a wonderful series in that first mm-hmm. one with Massimo mm-hmm. in Milan. 
And, you know, the wonderful story, and they, of course, have photos of, you know, not necessarily the original incident, but one day one of his sous chefs came and said, you know, excuse me, chef, but I, I dropped a whole tray of lemon tarts. I guess we can't use them. And, and Massimo says, nonsense, let's, let's make some lemon pudding and uh, put it and uh, piece them back together again with lemon pudding. So now they do it on purpose. Mm, I love it. So, you know, they, they break the charts and piece them back together with lemon pudding. Oh. You know, one question that's occurring to me is we've talked about how cooking connects us. Cooking is, is a connector, at least for you and I. It connects us to the foods we eat, to, the, to our bodies, to the people around us. Can cooking also connect us spiritually? Can cooking connect us to something beyond? Well, the first answer is, of course, absolutely. And, you know, the eternal question is, how would you know it's doing that? What would your experience be like if it was doing that? And, um, you know, finally, over years and years, my experience is that, you know, when you become, when you're intimate with the, the moment, mm. in that intimacy with the moment, it's just this. And you're suddenly in the spiritual world because it's just this. It's not compared to that. So this, the sacred or spiritual dimension is, oh, it's like this, oh. And, and there's something, and it's, you see, and you can't even say there's something. Mm. But in a way, there's a stillness and there's a well-being and a safety. You know, classically, churches, in churches you could not be attacked. And more than one, you know, prince who was, or king, you know, trying to get to the church has been murdered on the steps before he could get to the sanctuary. You know, it turns out that, you know, we're so preoccupied with the objects or, you know, the thingness of things, as you were saying, you know, rather than thinking about what, the process. When you enter into the process, then, and if you, if you start to feel your body, you realize that you can't, you know, exactly find it the way you might have thought you could. Mm. If you feel your hand from inside, I mean, Chick Nhat Hanh had a lovely question, you know, look at your hand. Is it inside or outside? <laughs> but if you just feel your hand, and, you know, this comes up in, Mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. You start to feel, and then you notice there's behind the, the apparent sensation, there's a boundless space, an infinite time. And it's, it's right there in any moment of your experience. But as you said, you know, you don't usually up and stop for it. Uh, and the stress is that if I stop for that, I, I won't get things done in a timely fashion. Mm. You know, there's various stresses. But we tend to stay in, you know, the objective world and as we've created it and think that we can 
that if we get the objective world, uh, that our task is to get the objective world to behave the way we want it to. And of course, that can't be done. And at some point, you rest with the way with the way it is, and you and there's space that opens up. Mm. And that can be your body. That can be, you know, I. When I say taste what you put in your mouth, and you know you have all the objective qualities, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, earth flavor, stem leaf flavor, flowery, fruity flavor. And then I'll give you a story, you know, which kind of started me on this kind of understanding. But when we were first cooking breakfast at Tassara, when we had a meditation hall, you could have eight people. And you could have one set of cream, milk, and sugar. And, you know, people being, you know, Americans, you know, taste what you put in your mouth is different than eat what you want when you want to eat it. Mm. Have it your way. Mm. And we'll make it your way. Have it your way. And we'll be there for you just the way you want us to. So product gets sold because you don't have to be involved in the process. You don't have to be connected with anything. You can maintain your your disconnection with everything. And you can say how great that is to be disconnected from everything and have things appear just the way I want them to. Mm. But then you're not grateful because, of course, that's like that. You deserve it. And so on. And so anyway, when we were meeting in the meditation hall, you know, we, we served and I was in the kitchen and we served milk and sugar. And so what I didn't finish was, you know, this is America. So, well, I want brown sugar. Shouldn't I be able to have brown sugar if I want instead of white sugar? I would like honey. We should have honey as well as white sugar and brown sugar. Oh, I want molasses. Oh, I don't want milk. I want half and half. Oh, I want canned milk. It took 10 minutes for this to go down to the end of the road, 12 or 13 people. That's a long time for mm-hmm. you know, condiments to go down the road if you're sitting cross-legged and your knees hurt. Mm. And you have to wait for that to happen before you can eat. And your food is sitting in front of you. So the next day we put down a set of condiments for every three people. So then it happened much more quickly. We got back to the kitchen and now there's 40 little Mm. dishes of condiments. What do you Mm. do with these things? Mm. Do you put them back in some big container? Do you try to save them in the little containers? What do you do? And while we were starting to think about this, we got somebody came running in from the Zendo and said, Roshi wants to give a lecture. He wants everyone to be there. Mm. And he started out his lecture saying, I don't understand you Americans. Pause. Hmm. What doesn't he understand? When you put so much milk and sugar on your cereal, how will you taste the true spirit of the grain? Hmm. And I thought, the what? The what? What, did you think you could put milk and sugar on every moment of your experience to make it taste the way you wanted to? Hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, you can't do that, can you? (laughs) Why don't you taste the true spirit of the grain? Why don't you taste your own true spirit? 
Mm. Why don't you taste the true spirit of your friends? Mm. So this is another word for, you know, the sacred. You know, how do you mm. taste the true spirit of something? And things taste different. But when you're tasting just true spirit, you realize the sincerity and integrity mm. and the vastness of something being exactly the way it is. You know, those radishes do not say, why can't I be a watermelon? They're mm. red. Mm. They're so much, they're big and juicy. I have to be small and red and white and I have to be earthbound. Why can't I? No, they don't, they don't do that. Mm -hmm. They are sincerely in, you know, who they, who and what they are. They're full of integrity mm -hmm. and they're full of everything is there. Everything is there. There's nothing missing. Mm -hmm. And they have their unique quality. And it turns out that's radishes, that's potatoes. It's hard to get that with product. Mm -hmm. Where's the true spirit of the product? You know, and I've done tastings, but what we noticed in tasting things over time is if you bite into walnut or almond, then if you bite into those, the flavor is not there at the first. The flavor doesn't pop mm -hmm. with salt and grease. Mm -hmm. You have to chew it. You have to be a little patient and you have to let it unfold in your tasting. Mm, the unfolding, yeah. Yeah, so you have to give it your attention a little bit rather than, you see, this is the difference between we're in our modern culture, you know, we think that the point of life is to find the next thing that will grab your attention. Mm -hmm. That will be pleasant or engaging or exciting. You know, what's the latest video game? And not, what can I give my attention to? Mm. And so, part of what we're studying is how to give your attention to one thing or another. And when you, how to give your attention to something and what you do when you give your attention to something. And when you have some curiosity or interest in what that something is, whether it's another person or or a food or you know your work you give your attention and and then things come come home to your heart then you the true spirit can come home to your heart mm. and you have to give your attention well i have one more question for you and this is just okay. a fun one and this is also a question i ask all my guests if it was your last meal on earth what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, today, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Oh, yes, please. It is. We are recording this in August, and I can't think of a better last meal. <laughs> Edward, thank you so much. You know, we haven't touched on so much, but I'm glad we got to the taste and the true spirit of the grain and the true spirit of yourself. And that's to give your attention to something, and that's sacred space then, along with, you know, the characteristics that are more apparent. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Nikki. Thank All you the best. so much. All the best to you. 
Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, and by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore, and as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.